Matthew 16. If you would stand with me as we read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Unlike Brian, I'm reading from New American Standard. I'm reading from a Bible. He reads from a version. Uh, You can tell him I said that. I won't say it when he's here because he'd probably tackle me. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. The Holy Spirit tells us through Matthew. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not overpower it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Lord, bless the reading of your word, bless the preaching of your word. Tune our hearts this morning to what you would have us to learn. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. Well, let's spend just a few minutes this morning talking about the question, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Now, you might wonder why in the world we would come to a very strong Southern Baptist church in the South. I won't get into that. Here in Kentucky and ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? Well, if you notice in the passage, starting in verse 13, it says Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi. And what does he ask His own disciples. What is the first question he asks them as he comes into this part of the text? He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? This is obviously an important question. Jesus wasted no breath. He wasted no words in his ministry, in his public ministry, or in the ministry that we don't have recorded. Because we know that the Gospels only record about three years of his public ministry. So the question is, why would Jesus think this is so important? Why would he not, and having been at the seminary for a while, I know what the seminary students are thinking. He should have asked about his Christological implications of the eschatological, you know, or some crazy big word. Who cares? Jesus doesn't care. Look at what he asked. Who do people say the Son of Man is? So he wants to know from his closest followers, hey guys, what are other people saying about me? Well, look at what they answer. They said, some say John the Baptist. Well, if you've read other parts of the Gospels, you know why some people may think he's John the Baptist. Though that could have been a little strange because we know that John got his head removed from his neck. So that could have been a strange occurrence. So some say John the Baptist, maybe come back to life. Others, Elijah. Why would they have said that? Because Jews believe Elijah would come back. Or Jeremiah, also a very important prophet in the Old Testament. Or one of the other prophets. So basically, they're going through saying, oh, he could, they're saying this and they're saying that. They're saying the other. We don't know what they're saying. But then look at verse 15. And then he said to them, who do you say I am? That's the most important question in the passage. Who do you say I am? Who do you say, Fisherville? Who do you say Jesus is? And this is not necessarily a question that has to be answered with 
words. This is the question that can be answered with actions. Who do you say by your actions Jesus is? Or who do you say by your words Jesus is? Look at the answer we get. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we look at Peter and we say, Thank you, Captain Obvious. This is one of those times in the New Testament when Peter gets it right. We know Peter has some problems, doesn't he? What happens pretty close to Jesus' crucifixion? They're walking around the town. Some guys say, hey, haven't we seen you with Jesus? And what does Peter do? No, not me. Maybe a little while later, they ask him again, hey, haven't we seen you with Jesus? No, not me. And the third time, no, look, we've got a picture right here. There's you and there's Jesus and y'all are hugging. Haven't we seen you with Jesus? No, that's my twin brother. You've never seen me with Jesus before, ever. He completely denies him three times in one night. But here in this particular case, Peter gets it dead on right. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, before you give too much credit to Peter, look at verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter had what we might call a special moment with God. When Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? God opened Peter's mind and Peter was able to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But that's not all he said. Look at verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. This verse in Matthew 16 has had more ink spilt over it than nearly any other verse in the New Testament throughout the history of the Christian church. Now, why is that? Because this verse can be, it's not, but it can be difficult to understand. What is Jesus talking about? What are these two rocks? Because the word in Greek for Peter can also be translated rock. And Jesus says, you're a rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. So is Jesus building the church on Peter? The Roman Catholic Church answers, yes, Peter was the first pope. And then we have successive popes all the way to today's pope. And the church is built on that man as an institution. Others have said, no, it's the confession that Peter makes, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that that's what the church is built on. But here's what I want you to see. What I want you to see is Jesus does a little play on words. And what's fascinating about Jesus, when he talks about himself, he uses what's called a demonstrative pronoun. That's the word this. He'll use that word to refer to himself. It's a weird way to talk. But it's Jesus. We've got to give him some credit. So here's what Jesus does. What he does, is he looks at Peter and he says, you're Peter. And then he does this. And on this rock, I'll build the church. We know the apostle Paul tells us that Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundation for the church. Is he the Christ, the son of the living God? Yes. Is that confession necessary for entrance into heaven? Yes. But Jesus is building the church on himself. He's building it up on him. And then there's the last part of the verse. And the gates of hell will not overpower it. Have you ever been in a situation in your life when you thought Satan has completely overrun my life? Or maybe you've thought to yourself, man, Satan has completely taken over the world in this particular point. Or it looks like it's just getting, things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. I'm here to tell you that Jesus says that's not right. 
What does he say about the gates of hell? They will overpower the church. Is that what he said? No, he said they will not overpower the church. Now, what are gates? You might think about cattle gates. We have a really cool thing in the West called cattle guards. We don't need fences. We just put pipes in the road, cut out part of the road, maybe about two or three feet worth, and then just put pipes in. Guess what a cow can't do? Step over it. So it keeps them in. What are gates? They're defensive. They hold things back. What can gates not do? Gates can't go on the offensive. They can't attack. So when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, what he says is this, Christian follower of me, when you go out and share the message that I am bringing to you, Satan will not be able to stop the advancement of the church. Now you might think, now wait a minute though, I have hard times in life. You know why you have hard times? Because when you go out and do those things that Jesus told us to do, when you go out and share the message that Jesus told us to share, you approach the gates of hell. What do gates normally have behind them? Either pillboxes or archer towers. The New Testament describes them as archer towers because we know about the fiery arrows of the devil. When you approach the gates of hell, when you approach an unbeliever to share Christ with that person, either verbally or through your actions, guess who starts firing arrows at you? The archer towers behind the gate. That's when the difficulty takes place. If you're having difficulties in your life, you obviously are doing something right because Satan is concerned about what you're doing. You're removing his paying customers from his side of the fence. If everything in your life is going great, I would encourage you to re-examine what you're doing or not doing. Because if everything is great and perfect and fine and you're always happy, then Satan has no reason to worry about you. And he's not constantly hitting the buttons to fire the arrows at you. So notice he says, the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. And then look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now that's funny, when I got saved, I don't know about you, maybe you did and I didn't because I grew up in South Carolina, maybe Kentucky's different. When I got saved, and then later when I was baptized, I didn't get a set of keys. Anybody in here get a set of keys? Does that mean we interpret this literally? No. What does this mean? Remember what Peter has just done. Remember what Jesus has just said. Peter has confessed, and Jesus says, I'll build the church on myself, on me. So what are the keys? The keys are the message of Jesus. When you present the message of Jesus to someone and they are converted, that is bound in heaven for eternity. When you present the gospel to someone and they're not converted, it's loosed in heaven. That's tough. That's really tough language. And then verse 20, then he warned the disciples they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now that might possibly be the weirdest thing Jesus ever said in his entire ministry. Wait, wait a minute. Jesus, you don't want us to say anything to anybody about what you've just said? Are you crazy? Because what are the disciples probably wanting to do at this point? Run and shout. Or if they're Baptists, walk and form a committee. I grew up Baptist. I can say that. It's okay. Why would he warn them? He warned them because it was not yet his time to be revealed. So what's going on here in this passage? Who do these people say that Jesus is? Well, again, for a while, there's this question about other guys and all these other prophets. 
And then finally, he asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it dead on right. Obviously, this is an important question for us to consider. So again, I want to ask you, as I asked you before we started, Fisherville, who do you say that Jesus is? I remember a lot of you by name. Some of you I don't remember by name. It's not a personal thing. I just have bad memory about that stuff. I could ask a lot of you by name, who do you say that Jesus is? And who do you say Jesus is? And who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And that would be equally as important as what Jesus asked Peter in this passage. Because the answer to that question determines your eternity. How might you answer it? You might answer like Peter. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You are the one that John describes just a few books after Matthew as the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. You might answer like the demons. Guess what? They got it right. The demons knew who he was and they shuddered. Or you might say, he was a being that was created a few thousand years ago and God made him into the Messiah. You might say, oh, he was just another guy and he died and it was a bad death. He was a good social teacher and he taught us some good moral things, but he's dead and we can go and find the tomb even though we've forgotten where it is. We could go find the tomb and dig up his bones. Or again, as the text says, you might answer, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. So I would ask you, who do you say that he is? And I would encourage you to answer, indeed, he is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And I would tell you this morning that because he's the Christ, because he's the Son of the living God, and because of the separation that's formed between us and God because of our sin, there is a massive gaping hole between us and the Father. And the only way to bridge the gap is through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And I would encourage you, when we're done today, seek out somebody, find me, and we would love to tell you about who this Jesus is. Now, as you saw in the video that we played before we got started, living in Salt Lake City is not exactly like living in Kentucky. Salt Lake City is, or Utah as a whole, has about 2.8 million people, 2.4 million of whom live in Metro Salt Lake. So everybody lives around the city. Our city's only about 35 miles wide. It's like an old Baptist church. It's long and narrow. And it's about 150 miles long. Now, why is it only 35 miles wide? Because there's 12,000-foot mountains on one side and 11,000-foot mountains on the other side, and you can't exactly build on solid rock. Around here, you have speed bumps. You go a little bit further west, and it turns into pool table flat. Between Lawrence, Kansas, and Denver, Colorado, there is nothing. There's some windmills. Other than that, there's nothing. I mean nothing. Kansas even charges you to drive across their state because they know there's nothing out there. You think I'm kidding. It costs you nine bucks to drive from eastern Kansas from the line to Lawrence, Kansas, because that's all there is. Then you get to Denver, and before you pull into Denver, you start to see the terrain change. And the Rocky Mountains come up, and you see 14,000-foot mountains with snow on them all year. And for Stacy and I, maybe for others of you who have been to the West, the mountains are a glorious sight because you know you're close to home. Then you get into Salt Lake City. It's 35 miles wide and 150 miles long. 70% of the people in the state are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And you might say to yourself, well, they've got Jesus in the name of their church. 
Why are we spending so much time and so much money, so many resources and so much effort to reach people that when you look at the front of one of their buildings, it says Jesus Christ in bigger letters than anything else? You know why we're there? Because they answer the question wrongly. Because when Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? They say, you're a created being. It's the firstborn son of heavenly father and heavenly mother. And you have brothers and sisters. In fact, your first brother that was born was named Lucifer, who eventually became the devil. But when Jesus was born, his name was Jehovah when he was born. He wasn't the Messiah. He was made Messiah after great heavenly battle and after a heavenly council meeting. That doesn't quite sound like the New Testament Jesus. They believe in a God who grew up on another planet called Kolob, who had a mom and dad just like you and I do. And that God grew up on another planet, and that God grew up on another planet. Infinitely endless number of gods and planets. They believe in four books of Scripture and a fifth one called Continuing Revelation where they can always get new Scripture presented to them. And they believe you have to do 17 specific things to make it into heaven. That doesn't sound like the New Testament gospel. So why are we in Salt Lake City? We are there, and I want to share a little bit about what's going on there. I know you're thinking, oh, here comes the missionary thing. Oh, I don't have any slides. Some of you are like, oh, man, yeah, can we get out the flannel graph while we're doing slides? Hopefully this won't be too, it's not boring to me, but, you know, I'm a little partial to what's going on there. But we're there because they answer the question wrongly. Not only are we 70% LDS, we're also 28% secular lost. And those 28% are probably gay or lesbian. 2012, we were voted the most gay and lesbian friendly city in the United States. More so than Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Chicago, or New York. And in the summer of 2012, a National Gay and Lesbian Alliance had their annual conference in Salt Lake City. Those two things just don't go together. All of Utah, though, that's predominantly Mormon, looks like a Norman Rockwell painting that threw up. Some of you are saying, who's Norman Rockwell? You really should find that out. <laughs> or just come to Utah and we'll show you. Everybody has a picket fence. Everybody has a beautiful two-and-a-half-story house. Everybody has four-and-a-half kids. Everybody has a golden retriever, and everybody's blonde hair, blue-eyed because there's a Scandinavian influence. I'm not making that up. It really, everybody is blonde hair, blue-eyed. And it's so perfect until you start to meet people. And then you realize that they're broken, and they're searching, and they're lost. We are not only one of the most religious states in the country, we are also the number one state in the U.S. for suicide and for depression and for antidepressant use and for pornography downloads on the Internet, and we're in the top five for elective plastic surgery. You know what that tells me? The people that have it perfect on the outside are dying on the inside, and they're searching for a way, desperately searching to change it. So this is where some of the missionary stories come in. I share these with you because you're a faithful Southern Baptist church. Finding a church with Baptists in the name in Utah is like trying to find, almost like trying to find a Mormon church here. It's kind of hard to find. Because Baptist is a four-letter word. Some of you might be going, B-A-P-T. <laughs> Wait, what? I'll explain it later. Our churches have names like Lifestone or 
Grace City or Redemption or Morgan Grace. Because it's easier for people to come in without having to deconstruct all of the negative thoughts and emotions about Baptists. Although we're teaching them to be Baptists, they just don't know it. So let me show you a couple of ways to think about the difference in between where we sit right now and where Stacy and I live in Salt Lake City. Rocky, if you'll throw up the first map here for me. This is a, uh, this is a map of where we are currently sitting. If you hit that little arrow right there at the top, Rocky, top, middle, over to your left, over to your left, right there, that'll, that little box. Yep, there we go. All right, so everybody can see the little dot right here in the middle. That's where we're sitting right now. Rocky, zoom out one time for me. That's still where we're sitting, right? I promise this is going to come to a point. Keep going. One more. And one more. And one more. And again. See anything pop up yet? We're still there all by ourselves. One more time, Rocky. Oh, what's this up here in the corner? This little icon just popped up. Now, if you notice up here on the left, this is the website controlled by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And what this is, this is a Mormon meeting house locator map. So what you can do is you can type in your address and you can find where the closest Mormon meeting house is to where you are sitting. So again, here we are right here in the middle and then the first Mormon meeting house over right off of 64 on Hurstbourne pops up. Some of you have probably seen that before. All right, Rocky, zoom out again for me. Now we're going to get a few more to pop up. Here's one over here in Germantown, kind of in the east end of Louisville. And there's one way out here in Shelbyville. So this is, now this is the talkback version. I know Brian doesn't do this, but I'm going to give you some chance to interact here, right? Just don't, I'll tell you what, mess with Brian next week and do that to him. <laughs> How far from downtown Louisville on the left all the way to Shelbyville on the right? How many miles? About 30 is what I'm hearing. Is that everybody okay with that? Okay, 30 40 miles, okay, so I'm, how about 35? We can compromise. We don't need a committee. So over a 35-mile area, there's three Mormon meeting houses. Rocky, zoom out again for me. All right, now they're starting to pop up a little more. This is all of Jefferson County, most of Oldham County. Now we're going all the way to Frankfurt, all the way south to Shepherdsville, north up north of New Albany, and all the way up past LaGrange. So now we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. How big is this map from west of downtown Louisville all the way to Frankfurt? Now we're talking significant mileage. 60, 70 miles, somewhere in there, right? Rocky, zoom out one more time. Let's go all the way to Lexington. That's the Mormon influence in Kentucky. Now, I'm here to tell you, this may sound crazy, that's not that many. Now, you may think, well, that's more than there need to be. Yeah, that's always the case. But in this map that goes from west of Corridon all the way to Winchester, there's about 15 or 20 LDS meeting houses. All right, that's right here in Louisville. So why are we in Salt Lake? Rocky, flip over to my house. All right, there's my house in Salt Lake City. We live on Cave Peak Drive. Rocky, zoom out one time. That's one square block. That's about a block and a half. One more time. Oh, there we go. That's about four blocks. That Mormon meeting house that you see right here in the upper left, I can see from my back porch. If I had a good enough arm, I could probably throw a rock and hit the meeting house. It's just that close. All right, Rocky, one more time. And again, now they're going to start to pop up. This is about a one-mile square area. You see one right here in the middle, which is near my house. If we were Mormon... 
That's the meeting house we would attend. Now, here's what you don't know. What you don't know is all the meeting houses on the map in Kentucky represent one Mormon ward. Now, what that is, a geographical uh, putting together of all the Mormons in a particular area, and it's about 500 Mormons. That particular ward that's lit up right there, that meeting house represents two. So that's actually 1,000 active Mormons in that one that's lit up. The one to the left is another 1,000 because that represents two. The one just south of us actually represents three. So that's two, four, five, six, seven thousand active Mormons in a one-mile radius. The town we live in of Harriman, Utah is 95% LDS. 35,000 people, 95% of whom are Mormon. So needless to say, there's us in our subdivision. There's our pastor who lives one door down from us, another church family that lives across from us, and pretty much everybody else is Mormon. Right? Rocky, zoom out again. Now that's about a, oh, that's about a four-mile radius or so. Rocky, one more time. And let's just keep going. Now what you don't, you may not be able to see from where you're sitting, each one of those icons now have a number on them. So if you see this one right here, it's got a nine on it. That represents nine different meeting houses by that one icon. Rocky, zoom out again. And again. That's Salt Lake County. One more time. And you start to see how they will populate. There are between Provo, Utah, right here in the center bottom of the screen, and Logan, Utah, which is up here in the north, up close to the Idaho border, there are 4,164 LDS meeting houses that represent 1.8 million Mormons among the 2.4 million that live in the Salt Lake metro area. Why are we in Salt Lake City? Because this is the most lost city in the United States. Utah is the most lost state in the United States. The International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention classifies groups of people into two categories, three categories. They classify them into reached, unreached, and unengaged unreached. Reached means, and this may sound crazy, more than 2% Christian. There's enough Christians in a given area to be able to spread the word by themselves. Unreached is 2% or less. Unengaged unreached is less than one-half of 1%. Utah is 2% Christian. Utah, the state of Utah, 1,500 miles from where we sit right now, is an unreached people group in the United States. Brothers and sisters, this is unacceptable. We have counties in Utah. The Bevels have been up there. I think we took Kerry and his family up there. They've been to Morgan, Utah. Morgan, Utah, from 1867 until 2011, was 100% lost. Every person, every single person who ever was born, lived, or died there, born, lived, and died lost, and they didn't know it, and they were proud of it. We have another county north and east in northeastern Utah called Rich County that is still 100% lost. 10,000 people in the county, and the name of Jesus has never been uttered in that place. Fisherville family, that's in the United States. This is our mission. This is why we're there. Because the entire state is lost and burning and going to hell and they don't even know it. Rocky, if you'll pull up the church plant map for me, that third one, the third tab there at the top. This is our strategy. This is the North American Mission Board website. 
This is your North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And one thing I want to tell you is when Easter comes up, you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. If you look up here, there are red dots and there are blue dots. This is not a UK U of L thing. <laughs> because I'll just tell you, for the U of L fans, you're going to like this more because the red dots are actual churches and the blue dots are potential churches. So the Cardinal fans could be, we're actually a basketball team and Kentucky is potentially a basketball team. This is not a UK U of L thing, even though the president of the North American Mission Board, Kevin Ezell, was pastor at Highview Baptist here in Louisville, and he's a UK fan. So I'm not real sure how all this works out. And our vice president is a U of L fan. So maybe they had to fight over this or something. But we have blue and we have red. I wish they were orange and purple, but that's just me. Some of you are like, what? Why? I'll explain Clemson to you later. Just ask. It's on my watch. It's everywhere. So what you'll see here is we have red dots. See one down here in Harriman. That's actually the church plant that stays in Jeremiah I-10. That's Lifestone Church. I have another one right here is Christ Fellowship. Another one up in here is Hope Church. Another one here, this red dot right here is actually our newest one right in the dead center. That's a brand new Hispanic uh, plant that just opened about two weeks ago. So that's a brand new one. And then up here in the top of the city, this is Grace City Fellowship. And then there are other plants all the way around the valley. I want to just want to tell you about a few of these plants and tell you what's going on and tell you what's going on with your money. When you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering at Easter, 100% of the money that you give, every single penny goes to one of these red dots, either in Salt Lake City or somewhere else in the United States or Canada. None of that money goes to pay a secretary in Atlanta where the North American Mission Board is headquartered. It doesn't pay payroll for people in Atlanta. It doesn't buy copy paper in Atlanta. It doesn't, do any, it doesn't buy paper clips. It goes directly to your missionaries on the field. Now, just to give you a sense of what we're doing there, Last year in Salt Lake City, we spent about $1.2 million of your money reaching people. Here's what that got us. All that money got us the opportunity to share Christ 3,595 times. That's just our 15 church planters that are there. Doesn't Doesn't count their congregations or families or anything. That's 15 guys shared the gospel 3,595 times. They gave away 192 copies of the Word of God. And we saw 80 conversions and baptisms from October of 2013 to September of 2014, 12-month period. One church that I'll, again, I'll tell you about now, Lifestone Church right here in Harriman, saw 22 conversions and baptisms in the span of one year. When they started in October of 2013, a a family and some friends moved from west of Fort Worth, Texas, in a little town called Weatherford. Weatherford is considered West Texas, even though it's in Central Texas, because Texans are weird about the way they say things about their state, right? It's just all this north, south, I don't get it, right? It's central, it's in the middle, it's Central Texas. They're west of Fort Worth, about 20 or 30 miles in Weatherford. There was a pastor there named Ben Helton who started a new church there called Lifestone Church in Weatherford, Texas. And are you ready for this? On his third Easter, they had 600 people three years in. That's unheard of. That's exponential, phenomenal growth. He felt a call that third year to send a team out from Lifestone to plant a new church in the hardest area he could find. So they start doing some research, and they find Harriman, Utah. From 2000 to 2010, Harriman, Utah was the fastest-growing city in the United States. It went from 2,000 people to 35,000 people in 10 years. 
It's the only place where there's land left in the Salt Lake Valley, and houses are going up everywhere. There's an intersection very close to our home that has nine new home builder signs all pointing the same direction, and they're all half and three-quarter of a million dollar homes. That's not our house. But they're, they're massive houses. They're being purchased so quickly they can't build them fast enough. Huge, booming growth. And from the time the city was founded until October of 2013... Never an evangelical church, ever. We knew of no Christians in a town of 35,000 people. It was, before October of 2013, the largest city in the United States without a Christian church. Can you imagine? 35,000 people and no ability to hear the name of Jesus in their own town. So Ben Helton and a team of about 15 move in. They start talking to the neighbors and witnessing to people. And on their one-year anniversary, October of last year, October of 2014, because my wife and I are part of us say we, we baptized 13 that morning and saw 125 people come to the one-year anniversary service. They've baptized 22 in a year. Let me tell you the quick story about one of the families that's there, Shane and Dixie Wise, if I can not cry and talk about them. Shane and Dixie were LDS their entire lives. Shane is a fifth-generation Mormon. He has great-great-great-grandparents who walked across the United States with Brigham Young in the Westward Trek. If you have pioneer heritage in Utah and you're a Mormon, you're royalty. These people don't convert. Shane, one morning, after about six and a half years of struggling, told his wife Dixie, you know what? I don't believe this anymore. I don't trust Joseph Smith. I don't trust the Book of Mormon. This is junk. So in the summer of 2014, Lifestone Church, our church plant, had a block party. Now I know what you're thinking. This is a Baptist church. They're not supposed to be partying. That's how you reach people. I know. We weren't dancing. We were just doing interpretive movement, so it's okay. <laughs> Although there was no committee for the block party, so maybe that gets us in trouble. We rented out a local park inside of a subdivision, and had blow-up games for kids, and we had cotton candy and burgers and hot dogs and the whole bit, and people from the community were invited the week before, and they all came in. And Shane and Dixie Wise came, and they brought their two kids. They have a daughter and a son. And they were sitting over under a tree, because in Utah, even though it's 150 billion degrees in the summer, if you sit under a tree, the low humidity causes it to be about 70 degrees and perfect. They're sitting under a tree, and some of our church folks are over there talking to them. And one of the ladies from the church comes over and grabs me, and she says, Hey, these two folks over here under the tree have a question. Would you be willing to answer it for them? Sure, I'll go talk to them. I walk up, and you can tell. It's, kind of, it's like a sixth sense. You can tell when somebody's LDS in Utah because of the look on their face. And as soon as I looked at them eye to eye, I could tell. Those of you who have been around Mormons, I know uh, the Bevels have, I know the DePews have, I know Randy's been around some. You can just see it in their face. They look like they're under just the deepest, deepest hole. It's an awful look. I said, uh, I understand you have some questions that, that you need answered. Yes, we do. The lady, Dixie, the wife, looked at me and she said, I want you to tell me why we don't need priests anymore and why we don't need temples anymore. Go. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. Welcome to the West. So I gave her a short answer on why no need for the priesthood and a short answer on why no need for temples. And she just looked at me and she said, okay, that's it. We're out. What's next? And I said, what do you mean we're out? What's next? She said, we're LDS. And I said, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck here, but I figured that by the questions you asked me. 
We're LDS. We have been for 44 years, our entire lives. We're done with Mormonism. What's next? Wow. Two months later, three months later, in October of 2014, we baptized Shane. My pastor and I did Ben Helton. You saw him on the video. We baptized Dixie. And then Shane called his two kids down in the water, and he baptized both of them. And now Shane and Dixie are the most, and I'm going to say this in love, I would say this to their face, they're the most irritating church people we have because anytime you need something done, they're right there to do it. They come to open the doors. They come to do everything. They've only been Christians for three months. And Dixie jumps in right before Christmas and says, let's do this thing I've heard about called shoeboxes. We did Operation Christmas Child, and this former LDS lady who'd been LDS her entire life for the first time finds about Operation Christmas Child, and we did 60 or 70 shoeboxes from our church, and she helped lead the effort. Shane, her husband, has a gift of music. Seth, you would love him. He can sing, sing well. He can sing, he can play guitar, he can play bass, and he can play drums. And he can do two of those things, right? He can play guitar and sing or play bass and sing or play drums and sing at the same time. He's phenomenal, and he won't stop smiling. He's the most intoxicating Christian I've ever been around. And when we have Bible study at our house on Sunday night, guess who the first couple is at the coffee pot? Mormons don't drink coffee. Shane and Dixie come out of the church. They bought a Keurig. They're drinking coffee all the time. They love it. Like, that's the mark of conversion right there. You found Starbucks and got a gift card. So that's Lifestone Church. And look, folks, the money that you give every Sunday that goes on to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, when you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, you help see people just like Shane and Dixie come to Christ. That's what it's all about. Another one of our church plants I want to tell you about is up here in the northern part of the city. It's called Grace City Church. That's Travis Fox. He grew up in Oldham County. He's a Wildcat fan. Bless his heart. It could be worse. He could be a Gamecock. And then I have to tell him about Jesus all the time. We do have a church planter that is a Gamecock, and I do tell him about Jesus all the time. Travis Fox and his church, Grace City, sits right across the street from the University of Utah. 35,000 students, and it's 99.9% lost. He reaches the University of Utah every single Sunday. And his church is doing so well, they're having to move out of the space that they're currently meeting in and move to another location that has got the greatest area ever. If you look at these two interstates, here's Interstate 80 coming in from the right in the middle, and then over here is Interstate 15. Down here is 215, where 80 meets 215, or I'm sorry, we're right up here. I know that looks weird, but that's where it meets. Right there where it says South Salt Lake. He got a facility with interstate signage frontage, and that's where he's meeting. He couldn't meet there if it wasn't for your giving because his rent is costing us $36,000 a year. And his church of 50 can't afford that. But because you give, he can meet and he can put signs up where people driving down the interstate can see signs saying, Grace City Church is right here. All right, Rocky, let's go up to Morgan. This is the last one I'll talk about. I promise. I know it's getting later, but it's okay. Jesus got it from the grave for us. We can sit for a little while longer. That's my guilt trip. Right here in the center of the map is Morgan County, Utah. Morgan County is about 10,000 people. And like I told you earlier, from 1867 until 2011 was 100% lost. A number of folks from this church have been into Morgan and met Jeff and Shayla Hurlbut and their four daughters. 
These people are Oklahoma State fans, big ones. When we beat Oklahoma this last bowl season, Jeff Hurlbut's the first one to send me a text message, go Tigers. He hates the Sooners. Huge Oklahoma State fan. When the OKC Thunder, the NBA team, come in to play the... When they come in to play at the Jazz Arena, because the Jazz don't play, they're really bad. When they come in to play, Jeff and Cheryl are the first ones there to go in and see the Thunder play the Jazz. They moved from Oklahoma to a county that was 100% lost. Jeff has background as a teacher, so he applied to become a school teacher, and the high school principal said, I can't hire you because you're not Mormon. Yep, that happened. Who is he going to appeal it to? The local school superintendent? Guess what he is? Mormon. I know that's a big surprise. You're going to go to your state legislator from Morgan County? Guess what? He's Mormon too. I'll call my state senator. He's Mormon. I'm calling our U.S. House member. Mormon. I'm calling Senator Orrin Hatch of the U.S. Senate. He's Mormon. I'm going to the governor's office. He's Mormon. I'm going to hire a lawyer and take this to court. The lawyer's Mormon. So are all the judges of all the courts. You can't appeal it. Just like living in Saudi Arabia, but we speak English. So Jeff waited for a little while. He was really distraught. And an opening came up for assistant superintendent of building and grounds. Big, long title that means one thing. You take care of the buildings. You cut the grass. You make sure the windows are clean. You clean the bathrooms, whatever. It also meant that when there's a sporting event or any kind of special activity for the Morgan City school system, this person is there with the keys to open the building, turn the lights on, make sure the temperature's set, and then turn the lights out and lock the doors back up. So he goes and applies for that, and the superintendent says, nobody wants your family here because of who you are, but I'm going to take a chance on you because I like you. You have one month. We'll give you a one-month trial. Jeff says, for that month, I worked my fingers to the bone. He could do this because of your giving. He works his fingers to the bone. He's at every event, opening doors, unlocking things, lights on. And he stood at the door for every event and greeted every kid and every parent who walked in those doors. And after a month, everybody in the community loved him. Morgan County has won the girls, the state girls volleyball tournament every year and the girls state basketball tournament every year. Jeff has four daughters, all four of whom play volleyball and basketball, and they're really good at it. So they got on those teams. They helped lead to another state championship the first year they're there, and everybody falls in love with the Hurlbuts. And now you can't go anywhere in Morgan County with Jeff Hurlbut without somebody saying, Hey, Pastor Jeff, he got his church site approved as an off-site location for lunch and instruction once a month for the high school students. The first month they did it, they had 50. The second month they did it, they had 100. The third month they did it, the kids wrapped around the building. They ran out of food. They had 150 students show up. And Jeff shares a Bible study with them while they're eating. Morgan County has never had CU at the poll. Those of you who don't know what that is, students gather, middle school and high school students gather once a year around the flagpole at their school, and they pray around the flagpole for their school, for their classmates, for the gospel to be sent out, for the Spirit to move among their, their friends, and they go in for school that day. Morgan County had never had that until Jeff and Shayla Hurlbut's daughters got into Morgan County Middle School and High School, and they started a see at the poll effort. And the first year they ever had see at the poll was 2012, and they had 60 students show up. 
four Christian, and all the rest were Mormon. You can guess who the four Christians were. Hurlbut daughters. Jeff Hurlbut now, February of 2014, they had their one-year anniversary of being in their building. They had 100 show up, and one of the LDS bishops came to the worship celebration. The LDS bishop is the leader of the local ward. There's only 10 bishops in all of Morgan County, and one of them showed up, and after we were done, he talked to Jeff for about an hour and a half asking hard gospel questions. These people can do that because you give. This is what's going on in Salt Lake City. It's an amazing place to live, but it's a hard place to live. Spiritual warfare there is like nothing I have ever encountered. Those fiery arrows hit, and they hit close to home. It is, as we often say, the most beautiful, ugly place we've ever been. You know, when we travel, I'm a, as a good Baptist, I don't like change. So I stay in the same hotel chain all the time, fly the same airline all the time. I rent from the same rental car company all the time. My preferred hotel chain is Marriott because it's owned by the LDS church. It's a Mormon thing for me. In most hotels, when you go in and open up the drawer of the nightstand, you find a Gideon Bible. In a Marriott, you find a Gideon Bible and a Book of Mormon. We got this one in Wichita, Kansas, about 90 miles southwest of Kansas City. Wichita, Kansas is about as American as it gets. And on our way out here, we stay in Marriott's, and we open the nightstand. There's the Book of Mormon. Now, they, get, they put it there for you to take it if you want it, and I always take them because then they have to pay to put another one in there. <laughs> it's not stealing. They put it there for you to take it. And I always like to look through them to see if anybody's highlighted anything, and I start flipping through this one, and nobody's highlighted anything. I put it down, and Stacy picks it up, and she happens to open the front cover providentially, and we find a note written by Schuyler Combe on April the 30th, 2014. Schuyler, from my guess, is probably a young female. This is what she wrote. To whomever may read this book, the Book of Mormon has changed my life. As you read, I challenge you to search for the truth. This book contains the fullness of the gospel and will guide you on a path to eternal happiness. I once found myself lost and unable to feel God's love. As I began to read, I felt a change. I started feeling God's love and turned around my life. I challenge you to read the book, ponder what you read, and then in prayer, ask God if it's true. I did, and I know it's true. As this little girl was writing that message, she wrote it probably with what she thought was joy in her heart. Thinking she would be able to impact someone with this book, she was impacted by this book. Brothers and sisters, I stand here this morning and say to you that Schuyler Combe, who wrote this note on April the 30th, 2014, if she's still a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is lost and on her way to an eternal hell. Because when she answers the question, who do you say Jesus is, she answers wrongly. Because this book that she said has led her into truth 
has led her astray. I want to encourage you to pray for our church planters in Salt Lake City. I want to encourage you when another team comes out. I was just talking to John about this this morning. There's a team coming out again in 2015 to work with Jeff and Shayla Hurlbut in Morgan County. Come and work with Jeff and Shayla. One other thing you can do on that church plant map is you can click on those red dots and get an address for that church planter. You know what? Drop him a card in the mail and say you're praying for him and you love him and thank him for what he's doing. If you can, put in a $5 Starbucks gift card. Put in a $5 Walmart gift card. You have no idea what that does for our guys. No idea. Because they know there's somebody that they will never meet. They don't get to do what I get to do, which is see you face to face. Somebody they'll never meet loves them and is praying for them. You can show who Jesus is to you by your prayers, by your participation, by your provision. I want to encourage you to do that today. Let's pray.